0: Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the June 10th, 1942 broadcast of the CBS News of the World. It includes updates from London, Russia, and Australia, plus news from the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. CBS World News brings you the news of the world on Wednesday, June 10th. Once again, Columbia's correspondents are ready to report to you direct by shortwave radio from across the ocean. This morning, we shall call in London, Australia. We'll attempt to pick up a report from Moscow, and we shall hear from Washington. But before going abroad for our first report, here are the highlights of today's news. British and Free French forces in Libya have repelled more Axis attacks on the southern flank of their line. In Russia, the Red Army is holding its lines before the Crimean naval base of Sevastopol. The RAF was grounded by bad weather during the night. In the Far East, 13 Jap planes have been shot down by Allied pilots over New Guinea. And now for more news and to call in CBS Correspondents Abroad, here is Harry Marble. Before calling in London this morning, here is the latest news on the Battle of Midway Island. The Japs finally have issued a communique on the naval and air engagement. As expected, the enemy's version of its losses was considerably less than those announced by Admiral Nimitz. The Jap communique said that one aircraft carrier was sunk and another badly damaged. Actually, the Japs lost two or three carriers, suffered heavy damage to one or two others. The Japanese spokesman said that one cruiser was damaged and that 35 planes are missing. The Japs didn't mention the damage to their battleships, cruisers, and transports. And now for a report direct from the British capital. We take you now to London. CBS London, Charles Collingwood reporting. Fighting in Libya is now halfway into its third week. The heaviest clashes of armor have so far been concentrated in the area west of Knightsbridge, which the British are using as a base. This is likely to remain the main cockpit, but at the moment there's a lull in the hollow west of Knightsbridge, which British communiques now refer to as the cauldron. Right now, the main feature of the desert fighting is the heavy attacks which the Axis is making on the fortress of Beer-Hackheim, lying at the southern end of the British line of minefields, which run like a, a breakwater some 40 miles deep into the desert. Yesterday, the Axis made their heaviest attack on Beer-Hackheim. Today's British communique says that it was on a large scale, and the enemy employed increased numbers of tanks and dive bombers, as well as infantry and artillery. This attack was repulsed by British armored forces who came to the support of the Free French who had been holding out so gallantly at Bir Hakeim. In the cauldron yesterday, the only activity was long-range duels between British and German tanks. Probably the tanks which the British used were the big American General Gramps. They're the only tanks the British have out there which, which are capable of engaging the German tanks at long range. The Battle of the Cauldron may be resumed at any time. Both sides have been busy refitting and reorganizing. Sooner or later, one will strike. Both sides have lost heavily, probably in fairly equal numbers. But the British still maintain what they call restrained optimism. One thing which this Libyan campaign has shown is the importance of superior numbers, of uh, superior weapons. The appearance of the new superior weapon, the General Grant tank in the desert, has changed the whole picture. The nature and employment of war material is, of course, a function of the General Staff. And today, a reorganization of the General Staff has been announced in London, which affects this vital theater or area of war conduct. The responsibility for equipment policy is now separated from the other functions of the General Staff and has been given to a new member with the title of Deputy Chief. This new deputy chief of the Imperial General Staff is General Weeks, and his job is the development and employment of weapons of war. General Weeks is what is known as a colorful general. He was a famous soccer player at college. He's young, only 42 years old, and when war broke out, he was only a colonel. He's now a lieutenant general. General Weeks is a scientist. He's a mining engineer and a chemist. His appointment marks an important tendency in modern warfare, the tendency for science to dominate tactics. This is Charles Collingwood in London, returning you to Columbia in New York. Next, across the Southwest Pacific. After a brief pause, we take you to Australia. CBS Australia, William J. Dunn reporting. Aerial warfare has flared again on Australia's northern fronts after a lull of nearly a week. And again, it's the Allied Air Force which developed the initiative, carrying the attack to the enemy. The Japanese have not struck a major blow by air at an Allied base in this sector since May the 18th, when 49 planes attacked our positions at Fort Moresby, And although they lost 13 planes shot down or damaged in yesterday's battle, the Japs were fighting a strictly defensive action over their new... That was William J. Dunn in Australia. We regret that the signal from Australia has failed. We return you now to Columbia in New York. Here are the latest press association dispatches from the Southwest Pacific. Continuing Mr. Dunn's report, Japanese-occupied areas of New Guinea and Portuguese Timor were fired by General Douglas MacArthur's airmen yesterday, and 13 enemy fighters were destroyed or damaged in combat against the loss of two Allied planes. A deck gun attack by a Japanese submarine against an allied vessel off the southeast coast, probably in the Tasman Sea, was reported to have been unsuccessful. The communique said Japanese installations at Emera were the targets and an aerial thrust against Timor, which lies northwest of Darwin, and hits were made on motor vehicles and buildings starting fires. Three of the Australian Commonwealth six states issued writs against the federal government today to prevent its enforcement of new uniform taxation laws, which they fear would operate to their disadvantage by depriving them of revenues. Victoria, Queensland and South Australia joined in the fight. They sought an injunction against the Treasurer and Ministers of State of the Federal Government. And now for a report from the capital of Russia. We take you direct to Moscow. CBS, Moscow. Larry LaSalle reporting. After several days of intense artillery shelling and air bombing, in preparation, the Germans have begun their full offensive against Sebastopol. But after two days of storming the Soviet positions, General Van Nunstein's 11th German Army is almost exactly where it was when it started. And only one sector of the German and Romanian troops managed to wedge themselves into a prepared position of the Crimean naval base. But we are told that their efforts to develop this success have been stopped. Latest reports from Sebastopol say But all the front lines of the fortress city are still intact. You know the civilians of Sebastopol dug this defense line during the five months separating this German offensive from the last. These deeply dug trenches and anti-tank traps in the green hills surrounding Sebastopol furnish a perfect line of crossfire for the Soviet field artillery, backed up by the long-range coast defense guns. Last time, General von Manstein used seven German divisions and lost 35,000 men in a fruitless attempt to take Sebastopol. This time, he's using 10 full divisions, and from his initial losses, he seems to be prepared to lose them all if he can conquer the Russian naval base. The fall of Sebastopol is essential to the German battle plan of sending one hook across the Kirch Peninsula and another through Rostov to keep the oil of the Caucasus. A fighting Sebastopol is like a spear in their side. Americans who saw from the chalk-covered campaign region of France in 1918 can get some idea of the battlefield because every shell and bomb that falls leaves a deep, startling white pockmark in the chalk deposits underlying the soft green of the Sebastopol Hills. Several newspapers today mark the second anniversary of Italy's entrance into the war. Probst says that in two years. Mussolini has succeeded in becoming Hitler's gauleiter in Italy. This is Ira Dessere returning you now to Columbia in New York. For the latest developments in our own nation's capital, we take you now to Washington. CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. The Navy announced late last night that an American merchant ship has been sunk off the northern Pacific coast. This is the third U.S. vessel sunk and torpedoed in Pacific waters. Presumably, she was sent to the bottom by a Japanese submarine. Senator Bone of Washington said that the ship was attacked off near Bay at the northwest tip of the state. She was sent to the bottom Sunday afternoon, and 59 survivors were landed yesterday at a west coast port. Only one crew member was lost. He died of exposure in a lifeboat. Two others were seriously injured by the explosion. Authoritative reports from Vichy France tell of the struggle going on between 86-year-old Marshal Pétain and Hitler's puppet Laval. Pétain, it is said, is now convinced that Germany will be defeated. He has changed his opinion on this score. The French hero of World War I was pictured as a patriot, striving desperately to keep his country intact, to keep the French people fed while surrounded by quizzling conspirators. Laval still believes that Germany will win or at least that is what he told one American observer. It would be strange indeed if he said anything else since his lifelong policy of self-aggrandizement now binds him to the doorstep of his German masters. Bataan is still highly regarded by his people, this informant said. They realize the difficulties under which he is laboring, but their attitude to Laval is one of increasing hate. Germany holds one and a half million French war prisoners as hostages. And the Nazis are threatening torture if the French fail to collaborate. Starvation and complete occupation are other weapons that the Germans are holding over the prostrate people. And while the French are praying for an invasion of the continent, their morale is low. Their children are hungry and the Germans are milking the country dry. These reports further reveal that there is little hope now of a general French revolt. But the opening of a second front would undoubtedly spur the people to widespread rebellion. Hitler is reported to be very reluctant to occupy all of France. That would require the diversion of sorely needed manpower to the army of occupation. And he must be careful not to goad the French into acts of sabotage that would slow up war production in the country. One informant reports that the French people consider the RAF bombings of French industrial centers as justified, even though a number of Frenchmen have been killed as a result. He also disclosed that German soldiers in France are mostly second-line troops. This is John Purcell in Washington, returning you to CBS in New York. On the China front this morning, Japanese drives in Jiangxi and Chekiang provinces are moving forward under a protective screen of planes. Their objective, according to the Chinese, is to seize the 150-mile middle stretch of a strategic east-west railway still in Chinese hands. The Japs are using a nutcracker technique in this campaign. One strong enemy column is pushing westward in Chekiang province, after bypassing the important rail center of Chu which is still held by the Chinese. The Japs in this sector are meeting stubborn resistance. The latest Chinese figures reveal that seven or 8,000 Japs were killed near Chu which makes a total of at least 18,000 casualties inflicted by the Chinese in that area since last Wednesday. At the western end of the line in Jiangxi, the Japanese have recaptured the city of Tungxiang after receiving 3,000 reinforcements. Both of these enemy drives are being supported strongly by air power, but reports out of Chungking indicate that United States and British planes have reached the China front. Previously, the American Volunteer Group was the only foreign flying command supporting the Chinese. The Argentine Chamber of Deputies is scheduled today to debate three major foreign policy issues, all of which are not in line with that country's avowed program to remain friendly with the Axis. The sharpest sign of Argentina's wavering from its neutral attitude is the protest to Berlin and Rome over the sinking of an Argentine tanker. Against this background, the chamber today will hear debate on the resolution of Raul Taborda, opposition leader to acting president Ramon Castillo, recommending a break with the Axis. In addition, another resolution will be heard which urges the establishment of diplomatic relations with Russia. And that's the news of the world. Colombia once again has called in its correspondents abroad for direct reports by shortwave radio. This morning, you've heard from Charles Collingwood in London, Larry Lesser in Moscow, John Purcell in Washington, and an interrupted report from William J. Dunn in Australia. Harry Marble reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.